This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. If you're interested in crazy stories from the wild world of organized crime, scams, gangs, cartels, mafias, drug dealers, and everything fun like that, have we got a podcast for you. The Underworld Podcast is hosted by two conflict journalists, Danny Gold and Sean Williams, who have reported on all sorts of dangerous people in dangerous places. Every week, they bring you a new episode on international organized crime from a new corner of the globe. You can find the Underworld podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. In April 1938, an expedition of German scientists arrived in Lhasa, Tibet. Their leader, Ernst Schaefer, had a reputation as a star explorer at home and abroad. During his first trip to Tibet in 1934, he determined that the rumored yeti was actually a species of bear native to the Himalayas. Schaefer's 1938 trip was aimed at locating another legend, the lost city of Atlantis. As the expedition set out, Schaefer was noticeably distracted and preoccupied. He had just killed his wife in a hunting accident six weeks earlier, but the mission couldn't be delayed. His country was counting on it. Ernst Schaefer wasn't just a zoologist and explorer. He was an SS officer. The Tibet trip was authorized by Nazi leader Heinrich Himmler. Their mandate was to find proof that the ancient Atlantis existed and that it was home to a master race called the Aryans. They were up against terrible odds. Schaefer's grief over his dead wife made it difficult for him to focus. The locals weren't thrilled about the Nazi visitors, and early into the visit, a group of passing monks attacked the explorers with stones. And worst of all, there was no proof that the lost city they were searching for had ever existed in the first place. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a ParCast original. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. 
sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to Parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of Parcast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. This is our second episode on Atlantis, the mythical lost city introduced in Plato's philosophical works, Timaeus and Critias, and prevalent in pop culture since. However, some people believe the lost city isn't so mythical. As we discussed last week, multiple archaeologists, historians, and amateur hobbyists have searched the Mediterranean for the sunken island's remains. This week, we'll look at some of the more out-there conspiracy theories surrounding Atlantis. What it is, where it is, and why it disappeared. Conspiracy theory number one. Atlantis was a real island located off the coast of Spain. Conspiracy theory number two. Atlantis was the first human civilization, populated by fallen angels, a race of genetically engineered half-human, half-animals, and Jesus Christ himself. The super-advanced Atlantean society collapsed in about 10,000 BCE, after thousands of years of natural disasters, nuclear warfare, and invasions by hostile giant animals. And conspiracy theory number three. Atlantis was home to a race of supermen called the Aryans. It was eventually destroyed by a race of human-animal hybrids who were bred using black magic. According to most historians and scholars, the story of Atlantis is nothing more than fiction. In his philosophical dialogues, Timaeus and Critias, Plato uses the story of the island's creation and destruction as an allegory to dramatize the rise and fall of a utopian society. This mantle was picked up by later writers, including Sir Francis Bacon, who added superpowers and advanced technology into the story, again as allegorical devices. But philosophical subtext aside, during Plato's time, the Atlantis story was largely accepted as fact. Over the centuries, many readers have refused to believe that Atlantis is fictional. Typically, they've placed the historical lost island in either the Mediterranean or the Americas. But our first conspiracy theory contends that the island was actually off the coast of Spain. While researching his 2015 book, Meet Me in Atlantis, author Mark Adams spent years speaking with historians, archaeologists, and conspiracy theorists. His goal was understanding why so many people believe Atlantis exists and was hidden or covered up, and if any of their theories held any merit. What he found was that so-called Atlantologists, from Minnesota to Morocco, all believed there was a kernel of truth within the ancient legend. The problem was in sorting the fact from the fiction. 
The first issue to address in any of the possible theories is the dimensions Plato gives for the island's size. Adams agreed with the scholarly consensus that those numbers were heavily influenced by Pythagoras. As we mentioned last week, the mathematician and philosopher literally had a cult following in ancient Greece. His followers ascribed extreme symbolic significance to certain numbers. For example, they never gathered in groups of more than 10 people because 10 was the perfect number. Many people believe that the oddly specific numbers in the Atlantis story were intended as Pythagoreanist symbols rather than as factual details. Plato described Atlantis being surrounded by rings of massive concentric circles. In Pythagorean philosophy, circles are considered the ideal shape. This detail was probably added to symbolize the perfection of the island's utopian society. Scholars typically take this symbolic numerology as evidence that the entire Atlantis story was invented as a metaphor. But to Atlantis believers, understanding the Pythagorean symbols is the key to unlocking the truth. If the circular rings surrounding Atlantis were just added in for symbolic effect, we can disregard them in our search for the actual lost island. The historic Atlantis, if it really existed, could have been any shape at all. Mark Adams also used this strategy to tackle the other major obstacle regarding the search for Atlantis, the island's massive dimensions. Plato's given measurements put Atlantis's total area at nearly 682,000 square miles, bigger than the state of Alaska. And this is without counting the mountains or rings surrounding the central plain. Theoretical physicist Reina Kuna hypothesized that the city's dimensions were actually a math joke. If Atlantis's central plain was 3,000 by 2,000 stades, its total perimeter would be 10,000 stades. The ancient Greek word for 10,000 was myriad, which also meant largest possible number. According to Kuna, Plato may have just meant to say that Atlantis was incalculably huge. Similarly, Plato's claim that Atlantis existed 9,000 years ago may have been an exaggeration. Mark Adams came to the conclusion that if some of Plato's numbers were symbolic, none of them can be reliably used as evidence for finding the real Atlantis. This solves a lot of the problems involved in linking the massive prehistoric city to real locations. So, what clues can be used to find Atlantis? Adams focuses on two aspects of Plato's story that seem historically reliable. Atlantis's war with Athens and the earthquakes that destroyed the area. In Plato's dialogue, Solon travels to Egypt, where the priests tell him about a mighty power which unprovoked made an expedition against the whole of Europe and Asia. These forces, from an island known as Atlantis, toppled every city in the region except Athens, whose soldiers successfully fought back. It's unknown whether the historical Solon actually heard this story from priests in Egypt, or whether the framing device was a fiction invented by Plato. 
But according to historian Eric H. Klein, there's historical evidence that Athens was attacked by a confederation of sailors known as the Sea Peoples in the late 13th century BCE. No one is sure where the Sea Peoples hailed from, but archaeological evidence suggests they were from somewhere in Central Europe. In approximately 1230 BCE, they traveled toward Egypt, leaving a trail of destruction in the eastern Mediterranean. Pylos, Mycenae, and Troy were all turned to rubble. Hattusa, the capital of the Hittites, was burned to the ground. The only city that fought the Sea Peoples and remained standing was Athens. By 1191 BCE, the Sea Peoples reached Egypt, where they were finally defeated. But it was too late for Greece. Nearly all of their civilization had been destroyed, and with it, they'd lost their language, their records, and their history. But Egypt survived, and so did their records of the mysterious seafaring nation that decimated Greece. Could this be the incident the Egyptian priest told Solon about? It does fit with the description. If so, this means Atlantis's destruction must have occurred sometime after their failed Egyptian campaign in 1191 BCE. It also supports the widely accepted theory that Atlantis was situated somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean, or, as Plato says, outside the Pillars of Heracles. It's been firmly established by both ancient and modern historians that the Pillars of Heracles refers to the Strait of Gibraltar, a narrow channel between Spain and Morocco that connects the Mediterranean Sea to the Atlantic Ocean. As we discussed last week, some theorists disregard this piece of evidence and argue that islands within the Mediterranean, like Santorini or Haliki, could be candidates for Atlantis. But in Plato's time, it was universally understood that the Pillars of Heracles referred to the Strait of Gibraltar. It's hard to understand why he would include this detail if he didn't intend for it to be interpreted literally. There hasn't been a compelling argument for what symbolic significance it might hold. Therefore, Atlantis must have been located outside of the Mediterranean, somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean. This rules out the possible locations we discussed last week, Haliki and Santorini. In the early 2000s, German computer expert Michael Hubner gathered a list of 51 details Plato gave about Atlantis's size and location, its distance from Athens, its geographical features, and so on. He plugged them into a program that analyzed the clues and returned a list of GPS coordinates that matched the description. The location with the most matching details was the Sous Massa Plain in southwestern Morocco. There are arguments to be made for the location. Sous Massa is just beyond the Strait of Gibraltar. A large hill rises from its center, similar to the mountain at the center of Atlantis. It's surrounded by a mountain range and dry, circular riverbeds. The diameter of the outermost riverbed is extremely close to the measurements Plato gave for Atlantis's outermost ring of land. Morocco even has a large population of elephants, which also appear in Plato's Atlantis. But there is one major issue. Sous Massaw is seven miles inland, and its elevation is much too high to be disturbed, even by the largest tsunamis. 
it's hard to see how this location could have been destroyed by a flood. It's possible that, at one point in history, the water level around Sus Massaw was much higher. What's now a hill surrounded by plains was once an island surrounded by water. Of course, that's entirely speculation. Without an island or a flood, it's unlikely that Morocco could be the home of Atlantis. That leaves one last possibility, Tartessos. In 1922, archaeologist Adolf Schulten proposed that the ancient city of Tartessos, located in southern Spain, was actually the same civilization as Atlantis. Little is known about Tartessos, but ancient Greek historians described it as a wealthy kingdom with natural reserves of precious metals. Tartessos was considered to be mythical until the mid-20th century, when archaeologists unearthed human remains and artifacts that confirmed that the city did, in fact, exist. Tartessos suddenly disappeared from the historical record in about 500 BCE and is widely presumed to have been destroyed in a flood. The similarities between Tartessos and Atlantis are striking. Tartessos was just beyond the Strait of Gibraltar. It was known to trade metals, including copper, tin, bronze, gold, and silver, all of which appeared in Plato's description of Atlantis's temple. Tartessos is also close to a large mountain range, the Sierra Morenas, and an active fault line lies underneath southwest Spain, which has been known to cause massive earthquakes and tsunamis. The only major issue with this theory is that Tartessos seems to have disappeared around 500 BCE, which is a generation after Solon's trip to Egypt. But Stavros Papamarinopoulos, professor of applied geophysics at the University of Patras, suggests that this doesn't disqualify the location, just the civilization of Tartessos itself. Atlantis could have existed in the same location centuries earlier, possibly in the 13th and 12th centuries BCE, during the era when the Sea Peoples were invading Greece. It's possible that a tsunami or flood could have decimated Atlantis, and once the waters retreated, the people of Tartessos settled in and built a new city on top of the ruins. Taking everything into account, I would argue that this is the best possibility we have. I give this theory a 7 out of 10. If Atlantis did exist, or if it was loosely based on a real civilization, it was probably somewhere near Tartessos in southern Spain. But we haven't proven that this is the location of Atlantis so much as we've disproven every other option. It's still quite possible that the Atlantis story was pure fiction and the similarities to Tartessos are a total coincidence. Well, this theory makes a good case for the idea that within Plato's fictional story, there is a kernel of truth. But if Atlantis was real, and southern Spain was the location, we may have to accept that archaeologists will never uncover the ruins, as the area was submerged in mud and water from the nearby river. This has made it difficult to excavate the ruins of the Tartessian civilization and getting to the ruins of the older city of Atlantis, which would be even deeper, might be fully impossible. That leaves us with a lot of questions. What type of society was Atlantis? What were the people like? And how did the civilization become so powerful? 
In the absence of evidence, Atlantis believers throughout history have come up with their own answers, some more logical than others. Coming up, we'll explore a theory that explains how Atlantis came to be and how it's going to return. Now, back to the story. In 1901, a hypnotist named Al Lane was hired to help a young man in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. The patient, 24-year-old Edgar Casey, had developed severe laryngitis the previous year and completely lost the ability to speak. Fearing the condition might be psychosomatic, Casey thought hypnosis might be able to restore his voice. Lane put Casey into a trance and asked him to assess his own condition. A hoarse voice escaped from the unconscious young man's throat. He said that an increase in blood flow to his voice box would improve his ability to speak. Using hypnotic suggestion, Lane told Casey that his blood flow should increase. Casey's face and throat suddenly turned red, flushing with blood. After 20 minutes, Casey declared that the treatment was over. He snapped out of his trance and his voice was back to normal. This was only the beginning of Edgar Casey's long career as a psychic healer. Over the next four decades, Casey traveled the country, diagnosing and curing all manner of health problems in return for voluntary donations. He became so popular, his client list included Thomas Edison, Woodrow Wilson, and George Gershwin. Along with healing, Casey channeled his psychic gifts to answer questions about the universe and predict the future. He never had any recollection of what he said during his trances. The words were being channeled directly from the great beyond. Or from the most incoherent recesses of his subconscious. It's hard to parse most of Casey's prophecies, but this hasn't stopped his followers from trying. Edgar Casey's Association for Research and Enlightenment, which was founded in 1931 and still exists today, collects and analyzes his readings and monitors whether any of his prophecies come true. Some of them actually have. In 1925, he predicted that the stock market would crash in four years. In 1935, he predicted that countries across the world would soon join forces to fight a massive war against Germany, Austria, and Japan. This wasn't a hugely interesting prediction, given that in the previous few years, the Nazi party had taken over Germany, Austria had become a fascist state, and Japan had withdrawn from the League of Nations. In 1929, Casey accurately claimed that there'd one day be a merger between AT&T, Western Union, and Westinghouse, which did happen in 1942. That seems too specific to be a coincidence. A broken clock is right twice a day. Casey also prophesied that the Soviet Union would become an international symbol of freedom. China would completely convert to Christianity by 1968. And an earthquake would cause California to slide off the coast and into the Pacific Ocean in the 1960s. But some of Casey's most famous prophecies have yet to be either proven or disproven. This brings us to conspiracy theory number two. Edgar Casey claimed that the lost city of Atlantis was the origin of all human life. 
and he predicted that in 1968 or 69, the island would rise up out of the ocean in preparation for Armageddon. Obviously, that second part seems easily debunked, but is there any merit to the first part? The Association for Research and Enlightenment has collected 14,306 of Casey's prophecies, and a good percentage of those concern Atlantis. It's extremely difficult to make sense of most of his readings, and they don't quite cohere together into a single narrative, but let's try to understand his perspective. According to Casey, the first living beings on Earth were fallen angels. In the beginning, these beings were thought projections, or vibrations of pure energy. They came to Earth willingly, but as they became more indulgent and began to abuse free will, their bodies gradually took on an ape-like form, and they became trapped in the physical realm permanently. In approximately 100,000 BCE, another group of angels agreed to go down to Earth to help guide their monkey comrades down the path of evolution. They were led by an angel called Amelius, who was the original incarnation of Jesus. We should note here that despite being a devout Christian during his conscious life, Casey's prophecies often centered around reincarnation. He believed the same souls cycled endlessly through different bodies and forms, from the earliest fallen angels all the way to the current generation of humans. Amelius and his fellow angels came down to Earth and voluntarily took on human forms. Simultaneously, five different races of humans were created. White, black, brown, red, and yellow. The red race, which sprung from Amelius, was called the Atlanteans. Uh, You heard that right. According to this conspiracy theory, Jesus Christ was the first citizen of Atlantis. Supposedly, Atlantis was the first human civilization, and it's still the most advanced to ever live. The Atlanteans lived in a massive landform, spanning over what's now the Atlantic Ocean, from the Gulf of Mexico to the Strait of Gibraltar. They invented everything from elevators to computers to death rays. They were also in possession of a quantum-powered crystal called the Tuoi Stone, which gave them psychic powers like telepathy and astral projection. But despite their advanced technology, the Atlanteans were simple people. They lived together in peace and worked as farmers, artists, and scientists. But over time, the peaceful society split into two groups. One faction, the Children of the Law of One, continued to practice the pure ways of the past. They wanted to use the land wisely and treat everyone equally. And then there were the Sons of Belial. This group was ruled by greed and carnal desire, and they used their advanced technology for material gain. The sons of Belial began to work on cloning experiments, combining human and animal genetics to create new races of half-human slave laborers. Casey described them as human machines or things. The children of the Law of One were horrified. They wanted to raise the half-humans into consciousness and give them more freedom and rights. But the sons of Belial wanted to keep them in the dark so they could continue exploiting them. The ethical debate tore Atlantis apart, sending the prosperous society into decline. 
But everything changed in 50,722 BCE when the animals attacked. Casey doesn't ever explain what sort of giant animals invaded Atlantis or why, but they were a serious enough problem to bring Atlantean society to its breaking point. And the invasion wasn't contained to Atlantis. Animals were attacking all five nations around the globe. The five races held a summit to discuss their options. At the conference, which was led by an Atlantean named Tim, the sons of Belial proposed using their death ray to destroy the animals. Everyone agreed that sounded like a good solution. The sons of Belial fired up the death ray and aimed it at the caves where the giant animals congregated. But the plan backfired. The energy harnessed by the death ray caused massive earthquakes, completely breaking the Atlantean continent apart into five separate islands. The children of the Law of One were not happy. The two factions went to war, using all their advanced technology to develop new weapons, planes, rockets, lasers, even nuclear bombs. The fighting continued for over 20 millennia. Despite the warfare, Atlantean society continued to develop and thrive. Then, in 28,000 BCE, they went too far. The sons of Belial overused their magical Tuoi stone, and it caused a massive explosion. The climate was permanently affected, and more land sunk under the sea. After this disaster, Atlantis seriously began to decline. But the climate change had no effect on the giant animals, who were still attacking their cities at random. 17 millennia later, in 11,000 BCE, the second king of Egypt, Arerart, called another series of international meetings. He thought it was time to discuss man's relation to the higher forces and come up with a set of laws to structure their bizarre, chaotic world. The Indian Secretary of State, Kudin, led the meeting's discussion on the combative animal problem. We should note here that neither Egyptian nor Indian civilizations are known to have existed in 11,000 BCE. These leaders were an invention of Edgar Cayce's imagination. Leaders from all over the world gathered in tents and caves throughout Egypt. By the end of the summit, they came to some sort of decision, but Casey doesn't elaborate on what it was. In the end, it didn't matter. God had his own solution to the problem. In around 10,000 BCE, some sort of shift in the Earth's poles, instigated by God himself, led to a massive change in the climate. The animals were finally destroyed as ice swept across the land. The humans apparently survived this, but an ensuing flood wiped out what was left of the Atlantean civilization. Casey believed this was the same great flood spoken of in the Bible, and that it was triggered by God's disgust at the sons of Belial and their destructive behavior. While the actual flood happened overnight, the children of the Law of One saw many signs that the end was near. Casey doesn't elaborate on what those signs were, but the army of animal invaders or the massive sheets of ice sailing in from the North Pole might have been clues. Well, curiously, the rest of the world was unaffected by the natural disasters that were destroying Atlantis. 
many of the Atlanteans were able to escape to civilizations around the globe, with most of them landing in Egypt. To preserve their culture in the case of another disaster, the Atlanteans separated their written records into two parts and hid them in different locations. Casey believed they placed one half under the paw of the Great Sphinx in Egypt. The records were to remain hidden until Amelius, the first Atlantean, returned to usher the world into peace. According to Casey, Amelius had been reincarnated multiple times throughout history. After his initial human form passed away, he became Adam, the first man from the book of Genesis. His next incarnation was Hermes, an architect who, according to Casey, designed the Egyptian pyramids in 10,490 BCE. He then came back as Joseph, the biblical Egyptian official who lived in the 5th century BCE. His final, and perhaps most famous turn, was as Jesus of Nazareth. In the 1930s, Casey prophesied that Atlantis would rise up out of the ocean again in 1968 or 1969. This would cause massive discord in the world until 1998, when Amelius was once again reincarnated. Casey believed this reincarnation would rule for a thousand years, starting in 1998. What Christians call the Revelation, or the Apocalypse, would occur at the end of his reign, once the world had finally achieved peace. Obviously, there's no evidence to suggest that a race of fallen angels created an advanced international society in 60,000 BCE. Although Homo sapiens did appear by 300,000 BCE, the first true human cultures didn't appear until the Neolithic Revolution, around 10,000 BCE, when hunting and gathering gave way to agriculture. Egyptian civilization didn't spring up until 3,000 BCE, thousands of years after the refugees from Atlantis were supposed to have landed there. But certain aspects of Casey's timeline do line up with reality. Casey's Atlantean society existed in the last glacial period, commonly referred to as the Ice Age. During this era, which lasted from about 127,000 to 16,500 BCE, giant animals known as megafauna roamed the Earth. This would have been a major concern for any humans trying to create permanent settlements. Interestingly, the dates Casey gave for the rise and fall of Atlantis are extremely similar to the dates of what scientists call the last glacial maximum. The explosion that supposedly sent Atlantis into decline in 28,000 BCE occurred at around the same time when the ice sheets covering the globe were at their thickest. After 24,500 BCE, the climate rapidly warmed, the ice started to melt, and sea levels began to rise. In approximately 16,500 BCE, the megafauna suddenly went extinct. There's no consensus on what caused the rapid extinction, but one of the prevailing theories is that it was related to the changing climate. Casey's date for the extinction was off by about 6,000 years. He also seemed to have his temperatures backwards. The Earth was dramatically warming up, not cooling down. But he was right about one thing. The rising sea levels caused a number of massive floods. 
1996, marine geologists William Ryan and Walter Pittman published what they called the Noah's Flood Hypothesis, theorizing that the Black Sea flooded in about 5,200 BCE, submerging 60,000 square miles of land. This would have been the event that inspired both the biblical story of the Great Flood and the Sumerian flood myths. Since 1996, there have been a few other theories proposed regarding how or when the Black Sea flooded. A similar hypothesis holds that a comet struck Earth in about 10,000 BCE, which instigated massive floods around the planet. So far, no evidence has been found to solidly prove or disprove these theories. But the bottom line is, Casey isn't alone in claiming that a devastating flood occurred in 10,000 BCE. The more controversial part of his theory is that Atlantis would rise again in 1968 or 1969. As far as anyone is aware, this did not happen. Actually, it might have, sort of. On September 2nd, 1968, archaeologists Joseph Valentin, Jacques Mayall, and Robert Eingov discovered an underwater rock formation off the coast of North Bimini in the Bahamas. The formation, which they called the Bimini Road, is essentially a long wall of limestone blocks that seem to be lined up and stacked on top of each other, as if they were placed there intentionally. Each block is about 10 to 13 feet long and 7 to 10 feet wide, and it looks like the corners were cut at right angles, though the seawater has rounded them out over time. Conspiracy theorists latched onto the discovery as proof of a sunken civilization, perhaps Atlantis. This was, after all, the same year Casey predicted Atlantis would rise again. However, the consensus among geologists is that the Bimini Road is naturally occurring, not man-made. Studies in 1984 and 86 concluded that the blocks were the result of natural erosion processes. A band of sediment accumulated as the island's shoreline expanded and eroded over time. Eventually, that sediment solidified into a long, thin rock, and when that rock eroded, it broke into multiple, smaller, rectangular blocks. Despite their bizarrely uniform shape and size, there's no evidence that the blocks were shaped by human tools. Conspiracy theorists argue that this same natural underwater erosion process would have destroyed any sign that tools were used. But in 1978, carbon dating of the rocks revealed that they had only been exposed to water since around 2000 BCE. If the road was a relic from Casey's Atlantis, the rocks would have to be much older than that. Apart from the Bimini Road, there were no other mysterious land formations discovered in 1968 or 1969 that might qualify as Atlantis. Nor is there any evidence that the world has been ruled by Jesus since 1968. But Casey was a believer in free will, and he thought human actions could potentially shift the timeline of the events he prophesied. His followers argue that if Atlantis hasn't risen, and Jesus isn't walking among us, it's because someone, somewhere down the line, accidentally delayed the revelation. This feels like a convenient out for any prophecies that don't come true. If our only evidence is the word of a hypnotized Kentucky faith healer, 
I'm going to have to give this theory a 1 out of 10. There's absolutely no scientific evidence to support Casey's claims. And the bulk of Casey's prophecies are just plain impossible to prove or disprove. They may be fun to consider, but at the end of the day, there's nothing linking them to reality. I concur. It's a 1 out of 10. Still, this doesn't stop the mystically-minded from taking them seriously. And in the wrong hands, even the most innocent prophecies can have dangerous consequences. We'll take a look at our final conspiracy theory right after this. Now back to the story. There are countless versions of the Atlantis myth, from Plato's political allegory to Sir Francis Bacon's high-tech utopia to Edgar Cayce's death ray-wielding angels. Our third conspiracy theory is just as outlandish. It contends that Atlantis was the home to a race of supermen called the Aryans. This theory comes from occultist Madame Helena Blavatsky. Born in Russia in 1831, Blavatsky spent most of her life traveling the world and studying Eastern religion until she arrived in New York City in 1873. She quickly gained a reputation as a psychic, and in 1875, she created the Theosophical Society, a group dedicated to studying occultism, religion, and philosophy. In 1888, Blavatsky published a book called The Secret Doctrine, which explained her theory on the origins of the universe. The book's second volume details her views on Atlantis, which, she insisted, was a real city that reached its height in 850,000 BCE. Blavatsky claimed that her work was based on an ancient manuscript she'd read in Tibet. The text, which she called the Book of Zion, was supposedly written in Atlantis in an ancient language called Senzar. There's no evidence this manuscript actually exists. The book and the Senzar language have never been referenced by anyone except Blavatsky and her followers. The basic concept of Blavatsky's theory is that there will be seven distinct stages in human evolution, which she refers to as root races. The first root race came into existence while the Earth was still forming. This species was entirely ethereal, meaning that they existed above the physical plane, like souls floating around without bodies or consciousness. During the next stage of development, the Earth's continents started to take shape. The second root race had consciousness and a yellow-colored visible presence, but they weren't exactly physical organisms. The third root race was a species of three-eyed giants called the Lemurians. This was the first stage of evolution to take on a physical form. They lived on the now lost continent of Lemuria, which, according to Blavatsky, was located in what's now the Indian Ocean. Blavatsky claims the Lemurians originated 34 and a half million years ago during the Jurassic period. This means the humanoid Lemurian people existed alongside dinosaurs. Around 9 or 10 million years ago, Lemuria slowly sunk into the ocean after a series of volcanic blasts. A group of Lemurians were rescued by divine beings called Manu and taken to Africa, 
where they evolved into the fourth root race, the Atlanteans. The first Atlanteans appeared about 4.5 million years ago. There were seven different sub-races, but they were all human in appearance. Blavatsky, like many before and after her, claimed that Atlantis was an extremely advanced society. They developed electricity, airships, and a socialist economic system. Aiding their development was a magic energy force called Vril, which gave them psychic powers and allowed them to communicate telepathically. The concept of Vril came from a novel called The Coming Race that was published in 1871, just 17 years before Blavatsky set down her theory. Although the book was intended as science fiction, many occultists latched onto it as truth. According to Blavatsky and her followers, Atlantis reached its zenith in about 850,000 BCE. Then the Atlanteans began to practice black magic, and everything went downhill fast. Blavatsky, like Edgar Cayce, claims that the people of Atlantis bred a race of human-animal hybrids with human bodies and the heads of lions, tigers, or bears. The black magic sorcerers kept these beings as sex slaves. As a punishment for this misbehavior, Atlantis was beset by a series of earthquakes that broke the continent apart into several islands, which were gradually submerged underwater. The morally upright members of the community were telepathically warned about the impending disasters, and about 9,000 of them were able to escape before it was too late. In 79,797 BCE, the escapees sailed out of the sinking Atlantis. Most of the group settled in the Gobi Desert, but a small faction broke off and traveled to the Sahara. Both surviving groups evolved into the fifth root race, the Aryans. The Aryans were the most advanced life form to ever exist, and once the Atlanteans died out, they spread out and repopulated the entire globe. According to Blavatsky, the humans that are alive today are still part of this fifth root race. Madame Blavatsky's theory of evolution has not been well received by scientists or even by other Atlantis conspiracy theorists, but her work was a hit in Nazi Germany. It's important to note that Blavatsky's Aryans were entirely different from the Nazis' concept of a master Aryan race. Still, throughout the 1930s, Adolf Hitler sent government-funded expeditions all over the planet searching for the remnants of Atlantis. Needless to say, they failed. There was no evidence of the lost city or of an ancient master race of any sort. The same goes for all the other aspects of Madame Blavatsky's theory. No proof at all. The strongest rebuke is that there is absolutely no evidence of a human society that lived on Earth millions of years ago, never mind an extremely advanced society with psychic powers. Blavatsky was somewhat on the right track in her theory about root races. Well, scientists generally agree that human life slowly evolved from amoebas over the course of millions of years. But she adds more than a few unscientific details to Darwin's theory of evolution. The three-eyed giant Lemurians, the interference of divine beings, black magic sorcery, etc. 
and her unsubstantiated claims weren't harmless. They were misinterpreted to fuel the fire of Nazi racial supremacy. Because of that reckless disregard for the truth, I rate Madame Blavatsky's Atlantis theory as zero out of ten. This is a rare conspiracy theory that did far more harm than good. Blavatsky's theory does serve as a cautionary tale. Even the most improbable, unsubstantiated claims can attract some believers. And in the wrong circumstances, what sounds like a silly conspiracy theory can be manipulated into something much darker. Of the three theories we discussed today, conspiracy theory number one is the only one with any scientific or historical evidence to support it. Looking at all the facts, I have to say that if Atlantis was based on a real city, it was most likely off the coast of Spain, near the ancient Tartessos. Tartessos, like Atlantis, was considered mythical for centuries until archaeologists uncovered its ruins. And as we discussed last week, other mythical cities like Manoa have also been unearthed. Atlantis might be lost forever, but given the wider context, it's pretty likely that it was based, however loosely, on a real place. If Atlantis is still out there, there's a chance archaeologists might find it someday in the future. Until then, we'll never know what truth is hiding deep under the sea. If you want to hear more about the mysteries of Atlantis and the real-life expeditions for it, check out the Atlantis episodes of my other podcast, Unexplained Mysteries. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. If you want to hear more Conspiracy Theories or listen to any of ParCast's other shows, you can find us on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. Tell us your favorite conspiracy theories on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Join us next week for more conspiracy theories. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Conspiracy Theories is written by Margot Newcomer and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.